I don't know anything about image compression exactly. other than what some of the acronyms mean or initialisms. Well, right now they're acronyms, even acronyms. though they shouldn't be. What's a TIFF? A TIFF? Something when you disagree with someone? That's <laughs> <laughs> what a TIFF is. Mm-hmm. How about a target? I don't actually know that one. Target parties instead of toga parties? <laughs> you are crushing it right now. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Steph. And I'm Chris. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot, hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So how are things going with you, Chris? Uh, what's up with me? Building an admin page, not using Elm. It's interesting. We're on an app that uses Elm, but we're building an admin page without Elm. I feel like we may have talked about this in the past, but we can talk about it more. And you're specifically not pulling an Elm? Yes. Okay. We've been using Elm on this app. Elm was a pre-existing choice. We came into it, but I think everyone who's worked on this code base has really enjoyed working with Elm. It's been a, a great experience sort of mechanically in the process of, of using Elm and having the compiler and all of that fun stuff. But fundamentally, when you build a client-side app, especially in the context of a Rails-type code base, you're losing a lot of the niceties and the helpers and some of the shortcuts that you can have. And you fundamentally have to build an API. In Elm, you have to define decoders, uh, which is a good and bad thing. It's a lot of boilerplate code, but it's great because of the type safety and all of the nice things that it gives you. There's just kind of a lot of code to write, a lot of machinery, a lot of plumbing. And in order to build out this relatively simple page, it's, it's just an admin form. Uh, it's just a form to like set up a couple of settings for users. Unfortunately, those settings are actually, they were implemented very disparately multiple different times. And so although a user may think of them as holistically existing as one thing, one feature set, it's mm-hmm. actually a bunch of different things. And so building this page is an attempt to sort of collect all of that data together, mm-hmm. provide a nice simple model for admins to use. And yeah, it made sense. Eves is actually doing all of the work on this. I've just been having lots of conversations with them about it because I think it's a really interesting sort of that consideration and, and that decision process. But yeah, so uh, we're building it in jQuery, actually. We're using jQuery. Well, we're not building it in jQuery. There's a little bit of jQuery involved. I think I heard you say earlier there's a sprinkling of jQuery. There's just a touch. Uh, we even did it in the way where jQuery only comes in for that page. It's jQuery and select2. So select2 is giving slight fanciness for very large select boxes that we want to make a little more user-friendly and easy to work with. But that's it. Frankly, if there were a select2 that didn't need jQuery, we would probably do that. Cool. Oh, man. Uh, you know, I've almost been at ThoughtBot for let's see, two and a half years ago. So just a couple years ago that I was working on a project where the admin was built in Ember and we were sinking a good amount of development time into the admin site. And it was this interesting trade-off of where we want our admins to have a positive experience and be able to do their work quickly. But at the same time, it didn't feel like a fair trade-off for how much work we were doing from the development side. And we were working with ThoughtBot, although I was the client this time. Mm. And someone on the ThoughtBot team mentioned, what if it were not an Ember? What if it were more just server rendered? We were using Phoenix at that place. So what if instead we just had Phoenix serve up the admin pages? And that was a hard sell at first because the whole team was like, yeah, but I mean, it should be fast and snappy and wonderful. And it's like, yeah, it should. It should have all those things, but maybe not to that degree. And let's think about the trade-offs of continuing this route versus if we migrated over. So they provided a quick demo of how quickly they could build it out in Phoenix and have the admin page and how we could migrate over 
over time so we didn't have to do it in one go. And it was a good experience. But that has shifted my idea now. When anyone is talking about building an admin page, that's my first instinct. It's like, what's the bare minimum we can do to provide a positive experience for the admins, but also limit the amount of development time we're going to spend maintaining this page and upkeep? So. Is yeah. that what you've experienced? Definitely, although I think the conversation was relatively straightforward here. I think most folks were sort of bought into it or trusted that we had good reasons for making the decisions. And I think it is interesting, though, that this conversation can be loaded because I think at times we can have our identity as developers sort of caught up in technologies. And so if at any point we're saying like React or Elm or any front end technology, is not ideal for certain use cases that can be seen as an attack is probably too strong of a word but if, if folks are identifying like i'm a react developer that's what i do and you're saying well that's not the ideal thing to use here is that an attack on that individual and i would say definitely not but if you can detangle those two things then it can become really hard to have that conversation and i'm a huge fan of react it's one of my favorite technologies to build user interfaces in at this point particularly ones that have sufficient complexity or dynamic interactive behavior that i want to model but i know that there's a cost and if we don't already have uh, an api that we've built out or all of the you know necessary api functionality and we're very happy with that i know that there's that cost there's also the cost of just sending stuff back and forth Rails or server-side rendering is just a very simple model where everything happens. You send everything through. All of the data is there in that stateless web request. You handle it, and then you send back a response. And that is fundamentally simpler. And I don't believe that you are opting into a bad experience. I actually think that the experience can be really great with a nice, simple form that maybe has a little bit of jQuery and things like that sprinkled in. But I think there's room for both options and for considerations therein. Um, but it is complicated, especially when you're in an organization that has a bunch of things that are in you know, one of those camps to then start to suggest a different camp. Yeah, I agree. I like how you mentioned that we often describe ourselves as like, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a Rails dev or I'm a React developer. And other companies that I've worked at, that was often our title as I was a Rails developer. Mm-hmm. And then I came to ThoughtBot and I'm a developer. Like there's no specific technology that's attached to my title, which is kind of freeing. Like it's the idea of I'm a developer and right now I like X, but that could easily change in the next six to 12 months. And so I don't have any sort of identity. So then if I need to pivot to using a different tech stack for a different product, it doesn't feel like I'm somehow losing that part of myself to be like, oh, but I'm supposed to always love Rails. And so I need to always champion Rails when really there could be a different framework or language that suits that product better. And I agree. I don't think it diminishes the experience for the admins. I think it's very much a business decision where it's like, where do we want to spend most of our time and our resources and what's going to benefit the business most? And that's typically going to be with your end users and whatever you're trying to help them accomplish. And the admins are important, but not necessarily what you want to provide all your your resources. And the admin stuff tends to get pushed off in my experience. Like if there's a bug in the admin, but there's a bug in the product, guess who's going to get worked on first? It's it's not the admin page. Unfortunately, they will tend to get deprioritized. So the simpler interfaces that we can build for them with the idea of having less bugs and less concerns is ideal. So yeah, it was a fun little microcosm of, I think, a lot of the conversations that we have as Thoughtbot, as product developers, to use that as a way to, to characterize ourselves. We're trying to make things and get it out into the world, and we use a bunch of different technologies to get it done. But I think at, at times I've thought of myself as a Rails developer or an X developer, and I've 
as I've changed that hat enough times, I've been like, I guess maybe I'm just a developer in the good way, using the word just in the good way. (laughs) Maybe I'm a developer. Just a Um, developer. That's been probably the most interesting thing that I've done over the past week. How about you? So I was reading some code recently, and it's in a complex part of the application, and I ran into the function that's called uh, drop while. Have you used drop while? I think at one point I scanned through all of enumerable, and I think this is part of enumerable, right? It is, yep. So I think at that point I was like, huh, look at that. That's a thing. And then I don't think I've ever actually used it. So when I saw it, I had an idea of what it did. And instead of going immediately to the docs, which would have been smart, (laughs) I decided to tinker with it. And I realized that my expectation, it kept failing. It wasn't giving me back what I expected. So then I went to the docs to understand what Dropwile was doing. And it's a bit... Maybe tricky is not the right word, but it was surprising to me where given a list, if you say drop while, say if you have the numbers like one, three, actually, let's put some even ones in there. So if you do one, two, four and five, and if you have drop while odd, then as soon as it finds a value that is false. So as soon as it finds an even value, it's going to return the rest of that list. So if you have the list one, three, two, and five, and if it's drop while odd, then you're going to get back two and five. Mm-hmm. And so that is behavior that I haven't used before. And it's neat for what it does, but I really didn't like it mm. <laughs> just because it was confusing. And it was also perhaps a way it was being passed in because I was trying to think, okay, well, what would I do instead? What would I prefer for this to be? Because I can see how it's very useful. And I think it has to do with some of the naming around it, where instead of having it being passed in as an argument where someone was calling drop while on a list, but perhaps putting that inside of a function that then elevates the name of like drop while or ignore the leading odd numbers, something that's a bit more descriptive for me. So I ran into into that, which was fun. And then it also made me think about some of the other styles that I find confusing. Unless is one of them. I always get tripped up with Just unless. Just the entire keyword unless. Just the entire keyword unless. I always have to think for a moment and be like, well, when wait, so when does this happen? Same for like the trailing if statements. So if it's do this, if this, and it just feels like this sudden like jerk in the journey where I'm like, oh, wait, like I have to evaluate that first before I know the first part happened. There's code that feels like it takes me on like a journey where it's holding my hand a bit more. And then there's code that I feel like I need an orange slice after reading. (laughs) And that's the code that like after I get through it, I'm like, oh, okay, I need need a breather and then I'll come back to this. Yeah, it was interesting to me when you were going through this and you highlighted it almost in a way that you were like, "I, I don't know if it's just me, but I find this a little more complicated. And the way you phrased it caught my attention was, I always pause a little when I'm reading, and I think it was Drop While that you were specifically referencing, but then you also mentioned Unless and the others. And I think that's such a good litmus test. So if there's anything that's causing you to pause while you're reading, and if that's true this far into your career, like you've had some time to spend around Unless, and it's still not intuitive, and I'm the same way on that. When I see Unless, I'm like, wait, okay, so if I... And then I can okay, got it. And it always adds an extra second, an extra layer that I have to keep in my mind. And so the fewer of those I can have, the better. And like postfix ifs, you have an if after everything. Uh, I remember coming to ThoughtBot and it was part of the guides that you're not allowed to do a lot of these things. Not allowed is too strong of a word. That we strongly encourage code that does not use these constructs. I like how you took on a fancy voice there. You're yes. Like, strongly encourage. That's the voice of the ThoughtBot guides. Okay. It's, uh, it's our... <laughs> Fancy Ralph. Uh, <laughs> Ralph's got a bow tie on, and he's uh, just guiding you through the Ruby language and all the things to avoid. Turnerines as well. 
That was an mm. interesting one. It's interesting because when I go into JavaScript, I do allow myself to use ternaries. Mm -hmm. And I think we do not say the same thing in JavaScript because JavaScript's if statements are different. They're not expressions, they're statements, and therefore you can't use them in the same way that you could use a ternary. But all of those sort of things where I had to like give them up and my code got a little bit bigger, but vastly clearer. And it took me a while to accept that, but I'm very happy to be in this place where I'm like, yeah, you know what, I don't need unless. So whenever I stumble across code like this, I try to pause and think about what it is that makes me pause when I'm reading, say if it's for the unless or if it's for the drop while. And I think in terms for the unless, the reason I pause on it is because it elevates a different condition than I would choose to elevate. So with unless, it would say like unless valid, then raise, and then Instead, I would prefer to write that as if invalid, then raise. A way that I think of it is as you're parsing, like mentally parsing that, mm -hmm. you have to hold on to the context of unless you have this like inferred negation that you apply to the next thing. Whereas if you have an if, whatever the next thing is, that's what we're dealing with. So you don't need to like combine those two elements. You just do whatever your domain words are after that. So the keyword is almost just like stitching together the code if you're using if, but if you're using unless, it's inverting it. It's changing how the thing after gets interpreted. Yes. See, I can't even I can't even talk about it <laughs> without getting confused <laughs> about it. Each time I have to have this conversation with myself when I read unless, and I don't know if it's related to if it's even related to English and how we compose some of our sentences or our conditionals. Maybe if a different language would come across this and it would be totally natural. But it's just interesting to think about why it is that certain code makes me pause, while other code is just far more descriptive and easier for me to flow through. I think it's good. You live a considered life. A considered life? Yeah, you consider that you pause to think about why you're pausing. That's yeah. a good like meta practice there. Not just be like, I don't like you unless you're my enemy now. <laughs> to think about like what is it inherent to that that is causing you pause and then is that something that's true and therefore you might want to not use unless or is it something that you could change and then no never mind unless it's my friend again in this case no i think unless is largely a frenemy i don't know <laughs> frenemy <laughs> Yeah, it's probably a fairly newish habit for me. While in the past, I was far more accepting of like, yeah, this is just the way the world is. And now when I come across something in it, and I feel like it causes me even like this incremental, like this tiny amount of pain, then I want to understand like, why did it cause me pain? Is it something I have control over? And then I can adjust it? Or if what it is like what would i would do differently i like taking those those few moments to to figure it out there was a developer that i was working with at client a few iterations back now and they were relatively new to the world of rails and also they were working in a large very complex at times very confusing code base and I noticed a pattern where we would come across something weird in the code, and I would be very surprised by it, and I would want to dig in. And they're like, I don't know, whatever, it's Rails magic. And I was like, no, 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 we have to check on this magic, and we have to fear the magic. And I really tried to instill this combination of like curiosity, but also a little bit of... I don't know that weariness is quite the right word, but particularly in this code base where a lot of metaprogramming had happened, a lot of dynamically defined methods and things, and it wasn't clear at any point whether, like, is this Rails magic? Is this this code base magic? Is this a typo? Like, any of those three were valid at various different points, and it was so interesting that this developer's default position was just like, huh, well, that's weird. Okay, moving on. And I was like, no, 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 spend the time here. We have to dig in. Yeah. And so it's interesting to hear you describe that with uh, like even these little points now that you've found that you'll get stuck on and then dig into a little bit. 
Yeah. Well, and I can't remember exactly where I read it, but it was talking about how to gain more from your experiences or how to retain more to improve your memory. And one of the things that it talked about is when you're reading a book, pause at the end of each chapter and reflect on what did you just learn in that chapter or what did you experience during that chapter, if it's more of a fun than educational book. And then I've started doing that with podcasts and where at the end of the podcast, I'll try to summarize to myself, like, what did I just take away from that 30 minutes or however long I've invested into listening? And I think that's now in my coding process where each time I read something, I'm like, okay, well, what were the highlights? What did I encounter? And then that's helping the things that I'm experiencing form a more concrete experience that then I can pull from. That's fantastic. I do not do that. I'm terrible at that. It's tough. It's cool, though. But I realized because I was reading these great books. But then if you ask me like, oh, what was it about? I'm like, oh, shoot. Uh." (laughs) And then that was weird to me that I knew I had this positive association with it, but I then couldn't tell you about it. So then that made me worried that I wasn't really gaining the insights from that book that I was seeing it at the time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's really neat. But then I would quickly move on and forget it. And I want to make sure I'm getting value where I'm spending my time. And that's one trick I've started using that I think I think it's helping. Interesting. I'm going to have to try that out. We'll, yeah. uh, we can report back in future episodes how it's gone for, well, assuming I actually do it. Who knows if I'm going to do I'll, it. I'll follow up with you. Awesome. I'll check in on you. <laughs> I'll keep you honest on it if you want to try it. Um, well, on that note, I think we have a couple of listener questions that we can respond to. I believe we do. And thank you very much to folks that keep sending in the listener questions. Again, we really appreciate these. They help us, I don't know, find more interesting topics, things that are different than just the normal things that we would ramble about. So again, if you want to send anything in, hosts at bikeshed.fm is the email, or you can send it to either Steph or I on Twitter, or really any number of places. I don't know, Road Flare or something. We'll find it. <laughs> Come stick it on the ThoughtBot door. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sign it with a note. Yeah. So this first question that we have comes from Stefan Wallen. And this is a follow-up to a conversation that you and I had a few episodes back about data migrations. So I'm going to summarize some of the details here because there's actually a few different parts. But one of these sections, they were talking about rake tasks versus migrations for data. And there's a couple of pieces in here that are interesting. So let me try and summarize it and then we'll, we'll dig into those. And Sounds good. Stefan is describing a situation where there are developers within the team who are taking vacation or otherwise out on leave. And when they come back, it can cause them to come back to the project with a broken database environment because they've not run the rake tasks in the correct order. And now that the rake tasks are removed because they're not needed anymore, they can't sync back up. And now they need to grab a production dump instead with whatever process goes with that. And so the final thing that Stefan's saying here is, to be nice, I shouldn't delete the rake task and instead hold on to it for a while so that these devs can catch up. So I think there are a couple of different things to tease apart here. What comes to mind first for you? Interesting. I love that folks are following up with this conversation about how to migrate data. And then if we're using migrations for schema changes, also for data changes and rate tasks. So that's always fun that folks are interested in this. For this particular one, the idea that if you are changing your data in a rake task and then a developer is going on vacation for, let's say, for a few weeks and then they're coming back. And then if someone has cleaned up that rake task, they've run it on all the necessary environments, they've deleted that rake task, then the person that comes back no longer has access to that rake task to migrate their local data. I think that's the part that's intriguing to me is the fact that they are storing data locally that then they need to manage just as if you would manage the data that's on your staging or your production environment. At least if I'm reading this correctly, that's what I'm getting from it. So that's a a tough workflow to be in. And then I can see why rake task would be very painful. I would love to suggest 
and perhaps they're in a world this is difficult to do, but suggest the idea of not having to maintain the local data, but instead of having a task that builds up the data, the fixture data that you need to run your app in a meaningful way from a user's perspective. So that way, when you are migrating production data or if you're making schema changes, then you don't have this concern anymore. So then they don't have to run those rate tasks when they come back. Yeah, I definitely agree with that as the sort of first consideration is this sounds like an odd workflow that is hard to keep up with. And so I think that's that's what Stefan is highlighting here. But more generally, I don't know that it's a necessity. So I agree that ideally we have a script within the app that can get us up to some version of production-like data. But I've occasionally worked on apps where the data was absolutely critical, I would say. So like Upcase was an interesting example where we're not generically working with content. We have very specific pieces of content that we're dealing with. And so there were even routes that specifically you know, went to certain pages and things like that. And so in that case, I was actually very regularly pulling down production data. And so the way Stefan describes it in here sounds like that's a bit of a complex task. In the case of Upcase, it was actually very straightforward, partly because Heroku and Heroku Postgres make it very easy to just capture a backup, pull it down locally. And then we have Parity, which is a utility to wrap around the Heroku CLI and make that whole process a little bit easier. So it becomes production backup, development, restore, production, those two commands in sequence. And ta-da, you have production data. So I would regularly do that on Upcase. But at the same time, the data was not giant. It was not terribly big. So there are situations like our current client that would absolutely not be possible with because the database is huge and growing by leaps and bounds every day. In the past, I've had other clients where they did have very large data sets. And so I ended up cobbling together a bunch of Postgres copy commands. So PSQL and the PSQL prompt, you can copy a given select statement into a CSV Mm -hmm. and then just save that off to your local machine. PSQL sort of magical in that it's running on your local machine, connecting to the remote database. So if you say PSQL, select this data, and then dump it to a CSV, it's dumping to a CSV on your local machine, which is nice. And then if you put that together with some restore, then you can make a, say, user-specific thing. That was pretty brittle, but worked well in that situation where, like, I want this customer's slice of data. So all of the data that we had in the system was way too much, but a given customer's slice of data could make sense independently. Then I think the third thing is the dev prime type task that you were talking about. And typically when I'm doing that, I'll I'll leverage factory bot and be able to use the factories to make that whole process easier. But this is a a classic example of, I don't know, there's, there's no easy answer to this. So you just sort of need to pick. But the situation that has been described here sounds like a a very difficult one. Yeah, I agree. I like all of the examples that you gave of different approaches on how to have that data that you need. I think listening to the examples that you gave, the final one of having a dev prime type task is still my ideal world, just because then, and especially if you can leverage something like FactoryBot, where you're already keeping these factories up to date because you're also using them in your test. So it blends nicely between the two purposes. But then there's that point where I wonder how much time folks are spending in trying to recreate data, not in the dev prime task, but maybe if they're doing it from grabbing some SQL statements or if they're doing it from grabbing like a production pool and then 
if you take each person's amount of time and at that point it's really worth having that conversation around well let's actually build up a task that mimics the user flows that we need because then i imagine there's probably a staging environment as well i hope there's a staging environment where someone can go and then test out features as well and your options there are also to either clone over production which could be giants and not a reasonable process and then the other option is to have a task that can also generate data there So I think it's one of those very important aspects of our development flow that's worth our time to invest in. And then it's great for onboarding and showing others also giving them like a demo through the app and having them work with something that's real and will show everything to them versus having them maybe cobble together the little bits that they need to work on this page. But then if they want to view a different page, then they have to spend time figuring out what data they need for that one. So I think that's where I would advocate where I think the rake task is highlighting a different pain point that can be addressed in a different way, but isn't actually related to the rake task itself. The one thing that I'll add to this is I had the, I don't know, somewhat embarrassing realization recently that I was spending a bunch of time putting together one of these dev seed type tasks using factory bot, but I felt like I was reinventing the wheel and I was like, this is really hard and the relationships are complicated and I don't even know this part of the app that well. I really wish there were some place that already had this and that I knew was up to date and et cetera, et cetera. And then I was like, oh wait, Feature specs. Right. Feature specs are right. specifically exercising a certain aspect of the page. And so you won't get a complete thing from any one feature spec, but say you're working on the admin dashboard page, you hopefully have in your feature spec a complete summary of how to build up the necessary data. So you can grab that and grab a few others. And they have the benefit that they don't go out of date because they're running as part of your CI. I've seen the dev prime task go out of date where it's like you run it and it errors halfway through, or you run it and it's like, well, it created some data. Not the best data, not real data anymore. That was true three months ago, but it's not true now. But the specs as a starting point are a great way to sort of bootstrap that whole process. And then ideally there is a script. And I've just struggled with keeping that up to date is the main thing. I agree that that's the ideal, but keeping it up to date is so hard. Would you be willing to write a test for that dev prime task? That's sort of what I'm thinking. One of the things that I've become more and more a fan of is the big test the one big, giant, huge test that walks through whatever your app is, say like it's Airbnb, then it's, I'm a person, I search, I go to a page, I pick a thing, I go through, I fill in my credit card, everything, and at the end, I get an email or whatever the relevant like external viewable user confirmable thing, but all of that flow, which is far too much to have in a spec, except maybe it's actually good. It will break for weird reasons. Ideally, another spec is also breaking whenever that happens if you've broken something in the system. And so it's not necessarily the best litmus test of keeping regressions from happening. But I found enough utility in that, the big overarching feature spec that like this is another thing that can kind of fall out of it because you sort of need all the data and it will produce all of that. Interesting. Yeah, I'm trying to think back if I've written like those type of big specs. And I've definitely written it where it spanned a couple pages where I'm following a complete user flow. But yeah, I think I would be on board with that as well, as long as it can still be corralled to a particular experience. I just Mm -hmm. worry like with apps that are bigger and have a number of features, I would still want to follow like one specific path. And then it's just in that feature spec and then find the thing that's most crucial to your users and then test that flow. Yep. This is still an evolving thing in my mind and not something that I'm like, definitely, I would do this all the time. But having one of these outsized feature specs that exercises a lot of the app Uh, One particular flow, like you said, but one particular flow from literally zero all the way to 100. 
I like that idea. Yeah, I think I'm at that point where I would want to test my Dev Prime task. I think for the coverage that it provides, and it could be a simple test just to make sure that it executes and doesn't fail. Like I'm not actually checking to see the data that it created, but I just want to make sure that it executes successfully because that's the first entry point that anyone coming to my team is going to see. Mm -hmm. And that's important to me that that very first experience works for them. And then also that we focus on keeping this up to date because I don't want to spend time on something that the team has agreed that's important, but then we let fall by the wayside. So it feels like a a fine area for me. Seems like it validates having a test. And I think the cost of that test will be relatively low. Like there's a corollary, I think, in factories. I want to trust the factories. I want to be able to use them with confidence. And so ideally, factories are as minimal as possible. But I also want them to be valid at all times. Like just the default, build whatever, create whatever, that should be valid. And so there's a, I think it's actually built into factory bot, but you can say validate all the factories mm-hmm. or it might be you enumerate through them and there's some little snippet of code that you can use. I think use, it's linting the factories or something yeah, like that. Yeah, factory bot lint. Yeah. But I like having that in there because I want to know that those are staying up to date. And if we've added a new required field, but the factory doesn't have that, then we have a factory that will produce invalid data. And each test now has the onus of maintaining that. So yeah, little things, a couple extra seconds in our test suite, but keeps development moving along. So I think there was one other part to that question as well. Did you want to finish out the other half of it? Sure. So there's a second portion here, which is, what do you think about periodically deleting database migrations? I would say I haven't done it. I haven't deleted migrations. And I have experienced running into where a migration has been deleted. And then I've gotten a message back where I've seen where active migration would alert that it can't find the migration. But honestly, yeah, that's something I haven't done before. Have you? Don't think I've done it. I think I've worked on apps that have had them deleted. This falls solidly into the camp of things that I was strongly opposed to in the past. And at this point, I'm like, eh, whatever. Really? Um, Just eh? Well, I guess I feel equal parts both sides. So it's not, eh, it's two competing opinions. And because I have these two competing opinions that are in opposition, I'm like, eh, is what that sums out to. Whereas I used to let each of those voices control me more than they should have. But on the side for keeping them, that's the history. That's every step we've taken to get to the schema that we have now. But does that really matter? Personally, I don't tend to go back through migrations that are more than a few weeks old to try and understand the path that we took to get here. I may try and find a commit that introduces the new code path, but not necessarily the migration in specific. And I think just taking a bunch of old migrations, truncating them and getting the DB schema dump, I think that's the mechanism that you would need to use here is just take all the old ones, collapse them into what the final database state is, and just have that as the new zero migration. And then from there, you build on top of it. So when you say collapse it, would you capture what all of those migrations have done, at least in the importance of like any insertions or work like that? So then you have a starting point or do you mean delete I think just them a DB schema dump. That's it. Okay. I don't know the actual mechanism for it, but I think you can probably take the whole thing that is DB schema and put it into a migration because it's create table and those sort and add index and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so you just take the entirety of that, delete all the other migrations, and now you have one new migration that is incremented one like date-wise higher than the rest. Mm-hmm. And that's the new foundation. And then every additional migration builds on top of that. But you just have one thing that says, and create all the tables and all the foreign keys and all the relationships. So any data migration sort of stuff that existed before that is gone. But I've never rerun all of the migrations in production is a different point of view, I guess. 
that has never come up. That's not a thing that could come up. It doesn't make sense. You're not going to do that. Yeah. I mean, that would be a weird world. The only way maybe there's others. But the way I think of it is you'd have to delete all the records in the table that's keeping track of all the migrations that have been run delete all of those values, and then run migrate to actually run all of them. I think you need to delete everything, right? Because if you try and create the user's table and you already have a user's table. Oh, right. Then that's going gotta, to error right away. So you right would just away. have to start from zero. And if I'm starting from zero, something else has happened. Something worse. <laughs> or better or different. But Yeah, I'm in a similar space where someone saying to me, let's just delete the migration makes my skin crawl a little bit. But it's one of those where I really start to think through like, well, what would happen if we do this? And I don't have a strong reason to be like, yeah, we shouldn't do this because of this reason and this will happen. And I also haven't done it. So I haven't had the opportunity to have tried and be bitten by it. But I have seen some blog posts where they actively try to condense those migrations, as you'd referenced earlier, where they'll take a bunch and then they'll take the outcome, store it in one migration. So they do technically still have the history there. Because there is part of me that wants to keep the history, but the other part of me is like, yeah, but we we have Git. Like, why do you need the history? Like, I advocate for Git in all other cases where I want to keep history. So it seems strange to me that I'm holding on so tightly to migrations in this case. But then I feel like I also have seen where those folks that are writing those blog posts on how to condense your migrations, there's always this caveat at the end that's in bold where it's like, but be careful you don't do this because then you might lose data. And that always scares me enough to be like, okay, I just, I won't do this. (laughs) I can't think of the way that that would actually happen. So that sounds to me more like the generic, listen, I'm not a lawyer, but here's some legal advice. (laughs) Uh, Like, listen, if you delete your production data, that's your fault and don't blame my blog post. But I don't remember. Maybe it had something to do with when you're condensing the migration and it gets a new timestamp. So yeah, I, I don't remember the specifics as to why they suggested you could lose data. I just remember there being this very nice, lovely blog post walking you through and then this very small section at the bottom that was like, by the way. And I was like, that's a terrifying, like, <laughs> by the way to like have at the bottom. That is a heck of a by the way. I guess coming back to the like foundational way in which I would think about the question, I never use them all in production. That's not going to happen. I use the most recent ones, but that's it. So I don't need them for production. So then the question is, does having the full history of migrations for development provide utility? For me, I've not gone back to them, not gone like into the deep long, long ago migrations. So that isn't terribly useful. But I also haven't felt much pain. That said, I can imagine feeling pain if you have, say, thousands of migrations, and Mm -hmm. it just takes a long time to do that migration. Or if they start failing on CI, or if a new version of Rails is incompatible with those previous versions, and now you have work to maintain them as you're moving forward, then I would start to consider the cost of keeping them. For me right now, I exist in this middle space of like, eh, it's fine. I don't really care one way or another, but deleting them would be more work than not. So I I don't. But if someone were to bring it up and like, we're feeling a lot of pain, I'd be like, okay, let's talk about that. Same. I agree. I haven't run into that space where I've felt pain from keeping them. But just as you said, if it were they were incompatible with a new Rails upgrade or there were suddenly motivation to delete them, I'd be very open to that conversation. I would want to think through any concerns about deleting them, but I also can't think of a reason that I need to hold on to them. So other than it makes you uncomfortable to delete. It things. does. It yeah, makes no, me same. uncomfortable. I don't are we just in the Rails world or maybe there's other tech stacks that also hold on to these types of files and migrations, but yeah, as Rails devs, that's like Day three, don't delete migrations. So it's interesting having to overcome that ingratiated idea that we have to keep them forever. I'm not normally like a hoarder when it comes to these things. <laughs> so, so it makes me do a lot of like self-introspection to be like, why do I feel the need to hold on to this? 
So uh, I think, Stefan, if I may, if you delete some of your migrations, please let us know how it goes. I think Chris and I are both in that space where we haven't done it ourselves, but we'd love to know how it goes for other teams that have this experience and what pitfalls did you run into? What benefits did you run into? That'd be a lot of fun to hear about. Yes, but equally, we are not lawyers and this does not constitute legal <laughs> advice. So yeah. That's our official disclaimer. Yep. <laughs> We're not lawyers. Or hoarders. Or hoarders. <laughs> Well, with that, I think we've probably covered enough for today. Anything else you want to add, Steph? I think we've been on an adequate journey for today. (laughs) I think we can sign off. Signing off. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed or reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter. Or me at svicari. Or you can reach us at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.